You know, there are some Sundays where I get home and I'm just emotionally exhausted. I feel like today's going to be one of those days, and I haven't even started preaching yet, so, uh, so pray for me. Well, listen, how many of you watched Super Bowl 55 this year? Show of hands. How many of you watched the Super Bowl this year? Okay, little uh, pop quiz. Anyone remember the score? Oh, wow. Okay, these are plants in the service. I did not ask for that. 31 to, wow, 31 to 9, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the, did Bill put you guys up to that? 31 to 9, Tampa Bay Buccaneers over the Kansas City Chiefs, and this game was just so, right? It was, ah, now, if you're Bill Hilligans, who's a huge Tampa Bay Bucs fan, he loved it. Or I'm a Denver Broncos fan, so I can't stand the Chiefs. How many of you actually watched the whole game all the way through? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. Okay, I did as well because I can't stand the Chiefs. But in general, we enjoy parody. We, we don't like these blowout wins. We don't like these just, you know, stomp on the enemy, dominant, flawless victories. The best games seem to be the narrow ones, the, the close victories, the buzzer beaters. We think of Gonzaga versus UCLA in the Final Four this year and as the final seconds of the game, I can't remember if it's fourth quarter or overtime, and Gonzaga, the guy, the point guard, dribbles it to half court, two seconds, three, he launches the ball, and it's in midair, and it just seems like time slows down, and it banks in, and the crowd goes wild, and the Gonzaga player jumps on the, the scores table, and he beats his chest, and everyone's going, yeah, it's one of the greatest games in NCAA March Madness History, we love buzzer beaters, but blowout victories, eh. You know, the next game, Baylor over Gonzaga was a blowout victory, and it was, eh, just not that fun to watch. Complete blowouts in sports are just boring and mundane unless you are the victor. Ooh, it's good to be the king. It's good to win, right? Everyone wants to be on the side of victory. I guarantee you the Buccaneers were not complaining. I guarantee you Baylor Bears in the NCAA championship weren't like, oh, man, I wish we would have kept it closer. No! Everyone on, on the victory side loves a blowout because it's good to win. And, folks, we are talking about sports. We're talking about literally games where grown men get to play, you know, bouncing a ball and putting it in a hoop. No one's going to remember this five years from now, ten years from now, certainly not a hundred years from now. And if they do, they're not going to care. But what about the game of life? What about this cosmic battle that is going on between God the creator and Satan our enemy? Now that one has some high stakes. That one has eternal implications. And you better be sure you are on the right side of victory in that battle. Because here's the thing. Satan seeks to divide the church If you look at the screen, Satan seeks to divide the church. This is the point this morning, but he will be crushed by Jesus. Is that good news, church? So turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16, we're going to continue in our series. We're almost done. We've got a few more weeks since we started this two, three and a half years ago, something like that. So Romans chapter 16, last week, Pastor Steve talked about verses 17 and 18, that uh, Paul is saying, watch out for the divisively deviant and the doctrinally deviant. These divisive and doctrinally errant people who hide their greed behind attractive personalities or smooth-talking eloquence. You know, they smooth-talk their way into deceiving the naive. 
And Paul says they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're snakes. Watch out for them. These people who, whether they are trying to doctrinally get the church, get Christians to veer from the gospel and follow false truth, false doctrines, or they're just divisive people who love to create factions, love to cause fissures and cracks in the body of Christ, Paul says have nothing to do with them. And then we get to verse 19. So read this with me. Verse 19, Paul writes, For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. For your obedience is known to all. I want you to think about the godliest person that you know personally. Go ahead and think of someone. You don't have to say it out loud. Just think about in your mind. I'll give you a few seconds. Who's the godliest person you know? Would other people affirm the same thing about that person? Yes or no? I can't really see you guys. Give me some head nods. Yes or no? Would other people affirm that? Yes, I'm willing to bet so because godliness is a treasure. It is, it's a rarity. And so when Christians genuinely live for Jesus, it is striking. People will take notice. And apparently the church in Rome, the Roman Christians, were people of high godly character. They were affable. They were admirable in their faith. In fact, Paul actually encourages them multiple times in this letter for their faith. In chapter 1, verse 8, he says, your faith is being reported all over the world. What if, what if the faith, the obedience of the, the body of Christ here at Bethel Cedar Lake was so grand that it was known all over the world? Like, what in the world is going on in Cedar Lake? I hear they're having a revival, they're having spiritual awakening. What is happening there? This is what was going on in the church in Rome. And their obedience to the Lord, their moral excellence because of the Lord, not, not, we're not obedient to get approval from God. We're not o- obedient to earn his favor. His favor has already been earned for us on the cross. It is finished, Jesus said. And so because of that, because of what God has done for us through Jesus, we respond in obedience. We respond in worship. And so this is what he's talking about. Their obedience in response to worship was in stark contrast to the folks we see in verses 17 and 18. And it brought Paul joy. He says, your obedience is known to all, and I love it, so much so that I rejoice over you. Paul is saying, you're obedient to your teachers. You're obedient to those who teach you the word, which everyone knows, and that's great. I love your obedience. I love your innocence, but don't be gullible. Don't be naive. Don't let people take advantage of your sweet innocence. I love gullible people. (laughs) I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I'm kind of a jokester, I love to mess with people. Right, Sky? I love messing with people. Oh, man. She just went like this. <laughs> That's not a good sign. I love gullible people. Gullible people tend to be very trusting individuals. By the way, as a side note, this is cool. Did you know that if you say the word gullible slowly enough, it starts to sound like the word oranges? Seriously, try it. Okay, I'm pretty sure. I, I heard it. It worked in the first service. They were like, gullible. Oh, man. <laughs> You're the people I love to mess with. <laughs> love gullible people. Sweet innocence is a good quality to have, but pair it with discretion. Be careful who you listen to. Be incredibly on guard against false teachers. Paul says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. 
Jesus said something similar likewise in Matthew 10, 16, where he says, you are sheep among wolves, and therefore be wise as serpent and what? Innocent as doves. The word for innocent here in our passage and in that passage is the, this Greek word that meant unmixed, pure, unadulterated. It was used of wine that had never been diluted or metals that had never mixed with other metals to be weakened in any way. It was completely pure, completely unadulterated, unmixed. And Paul is saying, don't mix it up with evil. Don't mess with evil. Don't even flirt with evil. Don't mix it with evil. How many of you are omelet fans? Anyone, anyone love a good omelet? Oh, man. You put a little ham in there, a little sausage, little green peppers. I'm not an onion fan, but you put little onions in there, some veggies, some cheese. You, you fry that thing up. Oh, it's so good. But what if I told you I'm going to add just a little drop of sewage? Like, not a lot. Not a lot. Just a little drop. I mean, this isn't a lot of sewage, folks, just a little drop of sewage. And I told you, in fact, you watched me put it in. Would you still eat it? It's just a little drop. Any, any of you still eat it? No! You would be crazy. If you would still eat it, we probably need to talk. We probably need to take you to the hospital because something's wrong. No one would do that. Paul is saying, know what is good and have nothing to do with evil. The scholar Grotius said, be too good to deceive and too wise to be deceived. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, for at one time you were darkness. You were darkness. Not you were in darkness. We were darkness. In our sinful rebellion, in our spiritual mutiny, which we committed against God, this spiritual treason, we became the essence of darkness. We became evil incarnate. We were Darkness, but not anymore, because through Jesus, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He's saying, have nothing to do with evil. Be informed about good, not intimate with evil. Now, we know how the world works. We can see how the world works, but knowing how the world works is not the same as participation in it or even interest in it. Don't be naive about divisions. Don't be naive about poor doctrine, false truths, but be innocent about the evil in our world. I think about these emails that I've received from the Prince of Nigeria Prince of Nigeria writes and he says, Dear sir or madam, you know, I am the Prince of Nigeria and my name is blah, 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 blah. And uh, I need you to loan me $10,000. Just $10,000. Just this small little loan. And then I will pay you back a hundredfold. And, and then you, you, you know, you'll, you'll be rich beyond your wildest dreams. And I see this email and I'm like, wow, what? The Prince of Nigeria has my email. This is awesome. No, not really. That's a joke. I'm thinking, who is this gullible to give in to these scams? Who is this gullible? But it's got to be working, right? They wouldn't still be sending out these scam emails if it wasn't working. But that's not really what Paul is talking about. He's less talking about that and more like completely avoiding pornography because you know the damage and destruction that porn can do. 
and how porn can destroy hearts and souls and lives and marriages and families and even how it leads ultimately to contributing to human trafficking. Paul is advocating discernment here. So live like a food critic, not like a goat or a whale. Now, I initially had the point up here as eat like a whale, not like a goat, but the more I thought about it, it just didn't fit. Let me explain. Have you ever seen a goat? They're so dumb. <laughs> like, the light's on, but no one's home. Like, hello! And they're just with that vacant, blank stare, just... Meh. <laughs> You're just like, what is this goat thinking? Well, nothing. <laughs> they're dumb. And goats will eat anything in sight. Like, they, if you leave your shoes out, they'll just start, hey, that's my shoe, goat, give me my shoe. And you have to grab the shoe from them. They'll just start eating anything in sight. They just swallow it whole. Now, I've never eaten a shoe. <laughs> but I imagine when you eat a shoe, you are headed for gastrono, gastrointestinal anarchy. <laughs> and some people will try any fleeting pleasure that this world has to offer, no matter how evil, no matter how destructive, no matter how bad it is. Yeah, I'll try that. And when you do that, you are headed for spiritual anarchy. So don't eat like a goat. But also, here, another pop quiz, trivia question. What is the largest animal on God's green earth? Anyone know? Blue whale. Blue whale. Blue whale. Huge, huge animal. Now, blue, the blue whale is a type of a whale called a baleen whale. Baleen whales have this, what's called a baleen plate in their mouth. It's basically like a filtration system. And so they'll just open up their mouth, and they just swim as they take in all this water. But as they take in water, they're taking in krill and shrimp and small fish and plankton and algae. And the water gets strained through. They push the water through the baleen plate and up out the blowhole while they digest the food. Now, at first, this seems noble. As Christians, maybe there's some truth to this. We strain out what is good and we spit out what is bad. But the more I thought about it, I'm like, no, because we shouldn't ingest evil at all. Rather than swallow it and spit it out, have nothing to do with it. Avoid it completely. So I thought, what about instead... Maybe we should be like a food critic. I mean a pretentious, snobby, high-end food critic. Like that's so far above junk food. You know, like, you eat Doritos? <laughs> Peasant. <laughs> right? These high-end food critics, a, food, a good food critic won't even bother with junk food. They're too good for it. They want the best, and they will only put in their mouth what is worth their time. Maybe as Christians, we should have a discerning, picky palate, have a taste for what is good, and have nothing to do with evil. This is what Paul is saying. Fill your minds with what is good. He says in Philippians 4, 8, uh, whatever is good and noble and right and pure and holy and admirable and praiseworthy and excellent, think about such things. And no one is, nothing is more good and admirable and pure and holy and praiseworthy and excellent than who? Sunday school answer? Jesus. So dwell on Jesus. Think upon Jesus. Meditate on Jesus. But be on guard against people or teachings that divide and deter and distract from Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. 
Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Fix your hearts on Jesus, which leads to verse 20. So read with us with me. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, we got one little, amen. I'm not trying to shame you, but listen, here's the thing. If we were at, uh, let's say the Bears were actually good this year, and they make the Super Bowl, or uh, you're at a Cubs game or Sox game, whoever, Blackhawks, whoever your team is, and they're like in, you know, it's the Stanley Cup Game 7 Finals, or they're in the Super Bowl, or they're at the NBA Finals, or whatever the case may be, and, and you're at the end, and again, buzzer beater, they shoot, the Chicago Bulls shoot, swish, they win the game. Now, how would you celebrate at that point? Would you be like, Amen. No! So let's, I'm going to read this again, and we're going to celebrate this as if Jesus is victorious over all, victorious over enemy. So here we go. Celebrate with me, church. What an incredible victorious rally cry. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. There it is. There is a very real spiritual reality that is unseen and yet more profound, more impactful than the reality that we can see. Paul writes in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil. There is this cosmic battle going on in our universe that we can't see, but has unfathomable, long-reaching, eternal implications. So he talks about Satan. Who is Satan? Well, Satan is the father of lies. He's the great deceiver. As Pastor Steve said last week, Paul in 1 Peter 5 calls him a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's prowling around looking for who he's going to take down, looking for who he can chomp on and eat and crush. Our adversary is constantly seeking to steal kill and destroy. Those are his aims. Those are his motives. Don't, don't make no mistake. Satan does not want what is best for you. He want, wants what is worst for you. He wants to steal from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you and your family and the church. That's all he's out there for. I mean, how many times do we hear about people who raise a jungle cat in their home? Oh, it's a little house pet, a little baby lion. And then the lion gets bigger the tiger gets big. Tiger King, anyone? Right? What? Uh, uh, you know, I don't know what happened, man. I mean, I, hear, I was raising this tiger cub since he was a little, little baby tiger, and it grew up, and man, it just, it just had a bad day, and it just took my arm off. And I don't know what it was thinking. I'll tell you what it was thinking. You look like lunch because it's a tiger! <laughs> right? You don't play around with a roaring, ravenous lion. And so here we have Satan. And the word Satan is actually not so much a name as it is a title. It's the Greek word satanos, which literally means the adversary. He is our adversary. He is not for anything God has created. He is literally against everything that God is for. He's against all that God is for, all that God has created. He's against you. He is our adversary. He's our accuser. Day and night, we're going to see the passage here in a little bit, accusing the brethren and the Brothers and sisters in Christ, day and night, yeah, well, Lord, these people did this, and they said this, and they thought this, and they did all these sins, and all that's true, but he just conveniently forgets the gospel, that all our sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb. 
So the reason that there are divisive people is because Satan seeks to divide and conquer. That's his MO. His MO is to divide the church in order to slander the church, slander our witness. And what better tactic than to send covert sleeper agents who through false doctrine or a divisive demeanor cause disunity in the body of Christ. And if he can't do that, he's going to whisper lies, whisper deceit. He's going to try to deceive you. If Jesus is the truth, our enemy is the deception. And so he's whispering lies in the ears of husbands and wives. Hey, husband, your wife is out to get you. Your wife is the enemy. Your wife doesn't want what's best for you. Hey, wife, your, your husband is just no good. That's your enemy. You're, you're, you're the queen of the castle. You're the king of the castle. How dare they stand against you? They're not for you. They're against you. That's your enemy. And he's whispering lies, trying to break up marriages. He's whispering lies and deceit into small groups, causing small groups to argue over the most petty, stupid things foolish controversies. He's whispering lies into church leaders so that we focus on unimportant things that have no long-lasting implications. He's constantly, constantly whispering lies, and oh, by the way, church, he's really good at it. He's been doing it for thousands of years. It's been this way since the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, here you have the serpent, and he goes to Adam and Eve, and he's talking to Eve, but Adam is right there, and he says, did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which God never said, by the way. He's twisting God's word. Did God really say that? He's instilling cracks of doubt, prying at the fissure of unbelief. No, you will not certainly die. Is that what God said? No, you're not going to die. He's saying, God is lying to you. You can't trust God. He's just lying to you. No, you won't certainly die. For God knows that your eyes will be opened. <laughs> He's saying the Lord is holding back good from you. You can't trust that he has your best interest in mind. Why would God prohibit anything in his creation? There must be some nefarious reason. You can't trust him. If God really loves you, why doesn't he permit you to do whatever you want to do? You should doubt God's goodness. You should doubt his benevolence. The serpent says, and then when you eat the fruit, you will be like God. God knows that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You don't even really need God. You can be your own God. You can discern what is good and right for yourself. Don't, don't take God's definition of good and right. Do what's best for you. Do what's good for you. And so he's whispering lies, whispering lies, and he's been doing it throughout the history of humanity. In fact, I can boil down his lies and tactics to one sentence. Now, he repackages it in thousands of different ways, but essentially it's this, doubt God and do what is best for self. That's his lie. Doubt God. You can't trust him. Do what's best for you. You do you. And this is why Paul says to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. It's a return to faith. It's a return to faith in God, a restoration of intimacy in the garden through trusting that the Lord knows what is best, that the Lord knows what is good. Not we know what is good, he knows what is good. And it'd be easy to look at our world, at the state of our world, and even the state of the modern church, and get discouraged, get disheartened, well, I guess our world is just going to hell in a handbasket. 
And we look at the state of things and, well, I guess that old devil won. Sounds like a country song. <laughs> guess that old devil won. No, he didn't. That's another deception. He is a defeated foe, and Paul wants to remind us that no, bad, no matter how bad things get, no matter how terrible things seem, no matter how crazy our world is, Jesus has the victory. And so he says here, the God of peace crushes Satan. The sense of this is to utterly defeat, utterly destroy, breaking an opponent into smaller pieces, just obliterating, completely overcoming your enemy. There is no coming back from this crushing. And I love the irony. The God of peace crushes Satan. It's like WWE. Now, it sounds paradoxical. You will not find crushing someone on a list of steps toward peacemaking. But it is when it's the Lord of peace and when our enemy is the prince of darkness, when it's the prince of peace versus the prince of darkness, the prince of darkness who hates peace, hates the, uh, uh, good things, delights in chaos, delights in death, delights in destruction. See, for peace to reign perfectly and supremely, the biggest opponent of it, the biggest opponent of peace, our adversary, our enemy, that creator of chaos would need to be fully and forever vanquished and he will be. By the God of peace. So what is peace? Well, in the, in the Hebrew, it was this word shalom. How many of you have heard that word, shalom? It's, it's now a modern-day Hebrew greeting, shalom. And, and, and we don't really have a cognate, a parallel in the English language for it. Shalom meant, means wholeness, completeness, complete restoration to how we were made to be. It's all the brokenness that sin caused Shalom restores, restoration to perfect intimacy with God. Sin and all its many consequences would be gone. Think about that. Think about the gnarly tendrils of sin. The ubiquitous effect over all creation, that poison of all poison that destroys everything it touches, all that is gone in perfect peace through God in Jesus. And here's where Genesis 3.15 comes in. Look at this. Genesis 3.15, known as the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first announcement of the gospel. This is the first place we see the gospel in all of Scripture. And it's so vital for our context. So, it says, uh, now this is the Lord, and he's, he's, because of mankind, has fallen, they've sinned, they've rebelled against God, and so he's condemning, and, and he says this to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is a promise of peace. This is a promise of victory over the enemy, and it's, it's achieved by the work of Christ on the cross. God promised from the very beginning of creation victory. And I just wonder, as Jesus is hanging there on the cross dying, if Satan's like, ha, ha, ha. I got him. They said it couldn't be done. They said the Lord couldn't be defeated, but I defeated him. I got him. He's laughing it up in that moment. I did it. I defeated the Lord. But did he win? He didn't win, did he, church? I mean, it was just as if he simply bruised his heel. I don't know if you've ever bruised your heel, like you hit it on the corner of a furniture or corner of a couch. It hurts. It smarts but you're not going to die from that. 
No one's ever died from a bruised heel. You can die from a crushed skull. And Jesus crushes the head of the serpent while the serpent just bruises his heel. Jesus rose from the grave as if to tell Satan, I'm back. You can't keep the God man down. So the God of peace will crush. But it says the God of peace will soon. Leon Morris called this verse a prophecy and a prayer for grace. This is not wishful thinking, but a steadfast declaration to console us, to give us hope. It will happen. And so we wait. We wait with expectancy while actively living for Jesus. But it says we'll soon. Soon? Really, God? It's been 2,000 years from the death and resurrection of Jesus. What do you mean soon? What gives? Well, remember 2 Peter 3. Peter says, the Lord does not consider slowness as we do. God's outside of time and space. A thousand years are to the Lord like what? A day. And a day is like a thousand years. He's actually delaying Christ coming back to give people time to repent. And so this means remain vigilant until God deals with evil permanently, which he will. He crushes Satan. You know, putting one's enemy under their feet was this military metaphor back in the day, expressing a resounding victory over your foe. And so you would vanquish your enemy like David over Goliath. You'd cut off his head, and then you would stand on the giant. You'd, you know, strike a victorious pose, maybe raise your sword up. It was resounding victory over your enemy. But look, at, look again at the verse. He crushes Satan under whose feet? Your feet. My feet. Our feet. Now, I thought he was crushed under the Lord's feet. Well, in Luke 10, 19, Jesus tells his disciples, so he sends them out. He sends out the 72 who are following him, and he sends them out all over the region to perform miracles and do great things and proclaim the gospel. And they come back and they report to Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, we saw demons subject to us in your name. And they're blown away by that. And Jesus says, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning. That's impressive. You know what's even more impressive, he says? Be in awe that your names are written in the book of life. We have, Jesus tells them, we have power and authority over the enemy to tread on scorpions and serpents. That's imagery for demons. We see the same thing in Revelation 12, verse 10, 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses us day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not even their lives unto death. Jesus shares the victory with us. We are co-conquerors with Christ. So through our shared triumph over sin, through Jesus, with Jesus and his gospel, we have victory over our enemy and we crush him together with our Lord. Oh, how many of you, how many of us need to hear this when we feel so defeated. After the service, I'm going to mention this in a little bit. I'm going to have you guys go out into the commons. There's a prayer wall with just dozens of prayer requests. I want each of you to take one off of that and pray over it during the week. I read through some of those. And man, you guys, I'm very impressed and proud of the vulnerability you guys displayed two weeks ago when we put those up because people wrote some heavy stuff. There's there's some who wrote, man, my my marriage is struggling. There's some who wrote, uh, I have a friend or family member who has this health issue or cancer or COVID and it's not looking good. Or 
Several said, I have this friend or family member who doesn't know Jesus, and I just want them to know Jesus. I mean, heavy stuff. And so we could look at the cancer and go, I, I guess we're defeated. We could look at a marriage that's struggling, I guess we're defeated. We could look at our friend or family member that doesn't yet know Jesus, who wants nothing to do with God, well, I guess we're defeated. And defeat seems so apparent. But in that moment, we remember that the God of peace will soon crush our enemy under our feet. And so in the meantime, we fight the enemy. But we do so knowing we win. And it's a whole lot easier to fight when you know you win. So we have two weapons to fight our enemy, the word of God and prayer. So church family, let's fight together in this holy battle for Jesus and with Jesus. Let's fight together. Will you fight together with us? Come on, will you fight together with us? Now, I don't usually care for people gloating in victory, like, you know, they've beaten their opponent, nah, 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 nah. you know, I don't usually care for boastfulness in victory, but I will gladly stomp on Satan with you and Jesus together. In fact, I look forward to it. You look forward to that? Man, Satan has jacked up our world, but he doesn't get the last laugh, does he? So quickly, let's look at the next few verses. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. So earlier in chapter 16, we saw two weeks ago that Paul sends greetings, commendations to particular individuals in the church in Rome. Now, it's individuals who are with Paul in Corinth as he writes this letter who are sending greetings on their behalf to the Roman Christians. I mean, I just imagine Paul, he's writing this letter, and here's Gaius. What you writing there, Paul? Oh, you know, writing this letter to the church in Rome. Hey, tell them Gaius said hello. Erastus is like, yeah, 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 me too, me too. Tell Ar- say, say Erastus said hello. Jason's like, well, don't leave me out. So Sipiter's like, yeah, me too, me too. They hadn't even met these people, and yet there's this immediate brotherly affection. That's what is amazing about the global body of Christ. There's an immediate bond through Jesus with others around the globe. I could speak a different language and a different culture with people around the world, not even meeting them in person, but through Jesus, our hearts are knit. We have that loving bond of Christ. Why? Because Satan tries to divide, but the grace of Jesus unifies. That's why he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In fact, verse 20 and verse 24 bookend this section on greetings. Grace transforms and grace overcomes. His grace allows us to overcome our enemy, and it is grace that transformed the individuals mentioned here. So let me go through these quickly. Timothy, Paul's closest ministry associate, he calls him his son in the faith in 1 Timothy 1, his confidant, his protege. He was actually later imprisoned with Paul in Rome. Why would he do that? Grace. Grace changes your perspective, your ambitions, your goals. He was willing to be imprisoned in Rome with Paul for his faith in Jesus because he valued Jesus above all. Or then you have Lucius, Jason, and Sisypter who are in certain sections in the book of Acts. All these men put their lives on the line. They were 
selected as delegates, probably, from the Gentile Christians to accompany Paul as he took the financial gift to the church in Jerusalem to help the poor there. So they gave of their time, gave of their money to minister to those in need. Why? Grace. Then you have Tertius, Paul's amanuensis, which is a fancy way of saying his ancient stenographer. Paul often dictated his letters to someone else, probably because he had a visual impairment, scholars believe. And Tertius was able to accompany Paul on this beautiful mountain of grand theological truth about God. Romans is the greatest theological treatise known in the history of mankind. And I can imagine over the course of days and weeks as they write this letter that perhaps Tertius too felt connected with the Christians in Rome. In fact, in the Greek, the verse is literally worded, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter in the Lord, greets you. What if Tertius dictated this letter as an act of worship for the Lord? This wasn't some mechanical project, but an act of service to God. Why? Again, grace. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Gaius. Gaius was Paul's host in Corinth. He was a man of hospitality, hospitality and probably great wealth and means. In fact, the early church in Corinth was meeting in Gaius's house. He probably hosted complete strangers at his house, believers who were traveling through Corinth like Paul. Why? Why open his home to complete strangers and to an entire church? Could it be that he no longer saw his possessions for his own gain, but for God's glory, since he was transformed by amazing grace? Or Erastus, a public official, a city treasurer. Here's a Christian holding public office in a pagan government. His faith in Jesus would have jeopardized his position, probably disallowed him from promotion and yet he foregoes status and greater prestige all to follow Jesus. Why? Grace. And then last. In fact, the definition of last but not least, Cordus. We virtually know nothing about this guy. He seems like a nobody. Of all the people in Corinth who gathered around Paul as he wrote the letter to the Romans, this man was least noteworthy, but yet he's not left out. Because there are no insignificant people in the body of Christ. Again, why, church? Grace. Grace, 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 amazing grace. Satan divides, but Jesus, through grace, unifies. So Satan seeks to divide his church, but he will be what, church? Crushed by Jesus. Oh, how good that good news is. And by grace in Jesus... We have unity together with Jesus. We're family, church. Whether you like it or not, (laughs) if you are in Christ, we are family. And we get to spend eternity not only with our Lord, but with one another. By grace in Jesus, because of Jesus, together with Jesus. And because we are family, listen, families fight for one another. You may not always get along with family, but you're family. And families fight together for one another. Someone comes against the family like, no, 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 no. These are my brothers and sisters. You're not coming against them. Satan is trying to come against you. But what if we, almost symbolically, it's like we're grabbing hands, we're holding hands, we're like, no, no, no. You remember the game Red Rover? Red Rover, Red Rover, San Jared, Red I was terrible at that game. (laughs) It's like we have Red Rover with Jesus locked in saying, no, no, no. Jesus is saying, this is my church, this is my body. You're not getting through, Satan. 
We are a family, and we as a family are in a spiritual battle. Make no mistake, this is a spiritual battle. And in the spiritual battle, we fight for one another. So I ask you again, will you fight for one another? Through the word of God and through prayer, we fight for one another. And this is why I'm going to ask you to do one thing. This is your challenge for today. I'm going to pray, and when we're done, you know, feel free to hang hang out and talk to people. We want to see a lot of that. But before you leave, if you go out this exit, or actually either exit, right in the middle, there's this prayer wall. Some of you put up the prayer request two weeks ago, and like I said, I was blown away by how just raw some of them were. I want you to take a prayer request off, take a card home, and I want you to pray for that person. Ideally, every day, pray for that person, pray for that prayer request, because we're going to fight for one another in prayer, like Paul says in Romans 15. We're going to be a family that fights. So let's fight. Let's fight the enemy through the word, through prayer for one another. So that's your challenge. Take a card. You can take several, actually. Take as many as you want. I would love to see that wall emptied. And if you weren't here two weeks ago, you didn't get to write a prayer request, listen, we're going to have that wall up for, I don't know, weeks, months. You can always put prayer requests up. And you could probably always take some down. Now, don't take your own prayer request. Pray over someone else. But we want to be a church that is prayerful, relational, missional.